Welcome to The Expert View. I'm Siobhan Creighton and today I'm joined by cardiologist Dr. Paddy Barrett. Thanks for the opportunity to chat. My name is Dr. Paddy Barrett. I'm a consultant cardiologist at the BlackRock Clinic with a particular interest in preventive cardiology and also in digital health tools uh, in medicine. And thank you very much for joining us today. Just Paddy, given your specialty, uh, presumably people who have had heart conditions or heart issues have been amongst those who are probably cocooning maybe more than some of the rest of us. Just as the restrictions are lifting, what, what has been your advice to them? I think we have learned more and more uh, over the last few months that cardiovascular risk factors in particular, and obviously having heart disease, is a major um, issue for those who are infected with COVID-19. The main issue really is, is optimizing your cardiovascular health as much as possible uh, to moderate your risk if you do have COVID-19. I think uh, we've seen with diabetes, with hypertension, with coronary artery disease, uh, these collectively represent patients who are at higher risk. So I think for those individuals, they need to be particularly careful, have a lower threshold um, for cocooning uh, for longer periods of time, for being, I think, uh, just mindful that they have an increased vulnerability. And we're seeing various different figures, but we know that having these conditions, particularly, uh, say, diabetes, for example, um, can put you in the same risk category as someone who is over 80 years of age. Um, wow. So your biological age and your chronological age tend to start to match up. Um, so I think in addition to being particularly careful around managing your COVID risk, um, I think it tells us that we need to be even more mindful about managing cardiovascular risk. So when you say reducing their risk, you're talking about taking, you know, the, the hand washing, is the, is the general public health messages, is it, is it as things are opening up now, avoiding crowds, is, the, is that kind of what you're saying to people? Absolutely. The, the standard messages are the same and there is a law called Pareto law, um, which means that you get 80% of your bang for 20% of your buck. Um, so really the, the base fundamentals that we have been talking about from the very, very start are likely where you will get the greatest degree of protection and safety from. So in terms of hand washing, in terms of respiratory etiquette, in terms of proximity to other individuals, particularly if they are higher risk individuals. And as we go down that chain in terms of the addition of masks, while they will be helpful, they're likely to be less helpful than the core fundamental measures. So it's not to say that they do not offer benefit, but we need to see the context of that benefit. And I think this is where we start to get into a focus on drug therapeutics, uh, for COVID. Clearly, there will be certain therapies that will be effective. We're seeing promising uh, data from the remdesivir uh, information and also from the dexamethasone steroid trials. But the reality is, is that is going to be relevant to a small percentage of people, whereas the greatest effect we can make is not actually contracting COVID-19 in the first place. So at a population level, it is those core fundamental measures um, that we've been talking about and repeating again and again and again since the start of this whole crisis. COVID, I suppose, has turned the health service on its head, really. There's things that couldn't have been imagined four, four months ago that we're now taking as, as a bit more normal and they're likely to continue. So uh, I know you have a big interest in, in digital and telemedicine. There are obviously tools there that now can be employed to a greater degree, which will help people who may be a bit scared about going into a hospital. Or How do you see telemedicine becoming, I suppose, more useful to both the health system and to patients? 
I've been working in the digital medicine space now for 10 years, and we have been continually advocating for the adoption of these telemedicine strategies. And many of those different ways will be much better ways. And I believe that telemedicine is one of those avenues that will add incredible value both to patients, to healthcare systems um, around the world, and, and definitely in Ireland. I think the, the real gains have been made in the very simple technologies. Um, I have uh, many patients who come from uh, counties as far away as Donegal, um, which on a round trip basis is you know, seven hours of, of driving. Um, and for those suitable patients, they can have a consultation with me sitting in their kitchen, having had lab testing or uh, certain diagnostics done locally. And if you look at that in terms of, and you scale the, the effectiveness of that across populations, you make an incredible difference. That means that that patient does not have to worry about driving for up to seven hours. It means that a family member doesn't have to take time off work to bring them to an appointment. And I think the, the benefits here extend way beyond the actual clinical encounter. Um, there are multiple synergy benefits that we're seeing and they're apparent almost immediately. And again, this is not a solution for every single case, but when it does apply, it is incredibly powerful. You know, how does it adapt? As you say, I suppose it's not for everybody, but if you're an elderly person and maybe, you know, you're, you, you're hard of hearing or whatever, you know, I suppose you have to adapt it to each case, is it? Um, I, I would, again, I would push back with you uh, okay. on this. Um, I think uh, those who are elderly or, say, certain disabilities, I challenge you to hand them an iPad and with some basic instructions to see how quickly they will pick up this technology. I was originally uh, involved with a technology platform that did home tele-rehabilitation with a motion tracking camera for those post total hip and knee surgery, which sounds incredibly complex and incredibly technologically advanced. And most of the patients were over 75 years of age and they picked it up very, very quickly, way faster than we had thought. And I think we actually underestimate the speed and ability of our elderly population to work with these technologies. Um, we've had a 10 year um, almost recession and there's been a lot of emigration and there's been a lot of uh, grandparents uh, spending their time talking to their children uh, who live now very far away. So don't underestimate uh, our elderly population and their ability to quickly adopt technology. The, the other thing is how should a patient prepare, I suppose, for a remote consult? I think exactly the same way uh, that you would prepare for a regular consultation. Um, the same messages apply. Um, you know, make sure that you have your list of questions that you want to get asked. The consultation is for you to add value to you. So make sure that you actually get the value out of it that you had uh, intended to, um, to make sure that you have your list of medications, uh, you know, written down so you can provide those. They are the standard questions um, and any relevant tests that you kind of may have the results for. Um, you know, patients are becoming much more, I think, uh, in control of their own healthcare and uh, much more active participants in it. Um, and to always remember that each consultation is about you getting value out of that consultation. So be very clear in terms of what value you want to get out of it. Um, and uh, I think it will work out very well. So uh, what percentage of your patients would you see remotely? So for the last um, two months, uh, the absolute majority uh, of mm -hmm. my patients. and. That is, I think, fortunate for me in terms of the, the specialty that I'm uh, participating in, in terms of uh, preventive cardiology. Um, so I think I will have a, a higher percentage of patients who will be able to 
I think, engage with uh, digital platforms. Um, it is only those patients whom I think an in-person consultation was absolutely necessary, but I endeavoured to have as many as possible of my consultations um, on a remote basis um, to protect my patients, to, uh, to protect our own staff, um, and also for the other ancillary benefits. And as I said, Johns Hopkins now believe that almost 30% of their in-person scheduled visits will be telemedicine visits. And my hope is that going forward when all of this passes and hopefully is in our rear view mirror, um, that we will have that percentage of patients uh, who are you know, attending for follow-up consultations, um, you know, a quick follow-up, a quick question, a review of a, a lab test um, or diagnostic. Um, and I think if we look at the idea of waiting times for, for consultations, uh, this is the solution. Can you give us some examples of kind of te- how technology is being used to, first of all, prevent things like heart disease, but also to maintain people at home? I think more and more uh, with the adoption of consumer diagnostics, you're seeing patients having access to tools that only physicians would have had access to 10 years ago. Um, It sounds like a very basic tool, but to have your own home blood pressure device, for example, um, makes a huge difference. We're seeing those biometrics being linked up to doctor's offices whereby when a biometric goes out of line, they can be triaged and identified as falling out of range and maybe needing attention. Um, But even beyond that, we're seeing uh, ECG devices that patients can do on their phone with the same degree of accuracy as we would be able to do in an office. And you're seeing the entire way that we deliver healthcare change. If someone said to me as a cardiology physician, 10 years ago or 15 years ago that patients would be doing their own ECGs at home, uh, I would have been astounded. And we're seeing that on a regular basis now. And I think if that is what we are doing today, um, we will be doing so much more in the future. Is there other tools that people could make themselves more familiar with or that would be of help to them? I think the there, there's there are a lot of tools available and it depends on the task that you're looking to achieve. Um, so if your objective is to improve your sleep, there are various sleep coaching devices uh, available to actually to help you. Sleep.io, for example, um, is, is one of uh, those tools. But you really have to be clear about what it is that you're trying to do. Um, I think you will get overwhelmed very quickly if you go to an app store or look for these devices. Um, you need to match the appropriate tool with the question that you're trying to achieve. If it is activity, there is an endless amount of apps available that can help you uh, track and promote your activity and provide guidance and structure and uh, how you go about that. But I think what matters most of all is you're very clear about your objective and where you're trying to go and then to match up the tools that are available. And there are many tools, but I think the, the better question is to ask is what is your objective? And then you match the tool with that. Are there any good websites or, or that, that you could recommend that people can go on to? Um, again, I think it, it is very much dependent on what your objective is. Um, uh, I think if you're one of, one of the, the things that I actually look at, which is I suppose slightly different, is in terms of mindfulness practices, which seems slightly strange for a cardiologist. But the reality is, is the quality of your life is defined by the quality of your thoughts. And if you have not that got, if you haven't got that in order, the likelihood of you being able to make proper decisions in terms of optimizing your cardiovascular health is very low. So in terms of uh, headspace, 
um, a variety of different uh, meditation apps. Um, I think these are incredibly powerful tools. And although they don't fall into the traditional cardiovascular space, um, I think I have seen tremendous benefits for my patients who have who have used them, and it helps them, I think, frame the problems that they're dealing with um, uh, far better. I think we saw a very rapid adoption of telemedicine at the start of this um, across all different disciplines um, uh, from primary care uh, to hospital level care and that has continued um, the, uh, the percentage has decreased appropriately so um, so we're seeing more inpatient uh, and in-person consultations um, but my hope is is that we will be able to continue the, the telemedicine uh, delivery of service um, to a degree as we go forward um, and as I said I think uh, this is something that is here to stay and this is something that I think patients will insist on and I hope we will be able to deliver on that as a healthcare system. Dr Paddy Barrett, thank you for your expert view.